The final medical oncologist interviewed for this program is Dr. Jenny Chang, who began our conversation by commenting on an issue addressed by both Dr. Carey and Dr. Grana, estimating the potential benefits of adjuvant systemic therapy. We look primarily at the risk of recurrence, and that is calculated either based on Peter Rafton's model or basically the traditional ways in which we do it is by tumor size, nodal status, the two top prognostic indicators. And very briefly, we classify patients into higher risk or lower risk. And if there are higher risk of recurrence, then we consider systemic therapy. And the systemic therapy that we consider will fall into three groups, depending on their biomarkers. And the biomarkers would be the steroid hormone receptors, ER and PR, and HER2. And patients with, generally speaking, more than 10% risk of distant recurrence at some point in the future. And if they're ER positive, we will almost invariably receive some form of endocrine therapy. In patients who are HER2 positive with the current data, which we'll go into greater detail in a while, we'll receive probably some Herceptin or Trastuzumab-based therapy. So when a patient comes to be evaluated, her risk of distant relapse is calculated. I do it by the traditional way, looking at tumor size, nodal status, grade of tumor. I look at the biomarkers like ER and PR and HER2, and then decide with the patient, based on her risk of relapse and the toxicity, the best therapies to take forward. Now, you mentioned the critical role of the tumor biomarkers, ER, PR, and HER2. What do we know about quality control in terms of how those tests are done and how reliable they are? They are unfortunately very difficult. So most laboratories have not validated these tests with patient outcome. So they are, as a lot of people, including Dr. Orrid's group and Soon Peik, have shown discordance between central laboratory testing and community testing for up to like 30% of patients. So it's extremely high, the discordance rate. So having said that, ER is slightly more concordant than PGR. PGR is notoriously progesterone receptor, has been very discordant between community practice and academic centers. In terms of HER2, HER2 is a very difficult test to do. And again, the discordance rate is extremely high. There is some controversy as to whether or not HER2 should be done by immunohistochemistry or by fish amplification, looking at gene amplification. Generally speaking for HER2, most practices would look at immunohistochemistry first. And if the patient has low IHC expression or very high IHC expression, they will be accepted as being not expressed or overexpressed. In patients with intermediate HER2 expression by immunohistochemistry, they would then proceed to looking at whether or not there are gene amplification, whether the gene copy number for HER2 is greater than what we would expect, and that number cutoff is 2. Once you've established what the biomarkers are in the patient, let's talk a little bit about the different choices of therapy. What about endocrine therapy? How do you sort through whether to give hormonal therapy and which hormonal therapy to give? So in endocrine therapy would be given to the majority of patients. I think that with the overview meta-analysis, it is clear that endocrine therapy probably would reduce the hazard ratio twice as much as chemotherapy. So endocrine therapy is the mainstay of therapy for patients who are steroid hormone receptor positive. And you would divide that into two groups, depending on the menopausal status of patients, whether they're premenopausal or postmenopausal. And even patient who is premenopausal with ER-positive breast cancer, the only treatment in the adjuvant setting to date 
is tamoxifen. In the postmenopausal setting, you have basically two possibilities. You can give tamoxifen or you can give the aromatase inhibitors. The data now has been out for probably about five years comparing tamoxifen versus the aromatase inhibitors. And the aromatase inhibitors across the board do show an improvement in survival for maybe about 25% more. So in postmenopausal ER-positive patients, they should receive some form of aromatase inhibitor treatment. The big question is, should they receive it up front? So a patient who's just completed surgery, should they receive the aromatase inhibitor up front? Or should they receive it after three to five years of tamoxifen? And that question is still unanswered. And they're awaiting the results of a large multi-center study. And we'll probably get those results in the next couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about the side effects and toxicity profiles of tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors in postmenopausal women? Tamoxifen has been with us for about 30 years, so the toxicity profile is extremely well defined. In terms of the side effects, most women experience hot flashes, which are bothersome, vaginal dryness, which again can impair quality of life. And these are major quality of life issues for patients. Other forms of adverse events associated with tamoxifen include a risk of thromboembolic events, uterine cancer in postmenopausal women. These side effect profiles actually increase with increasing age of the patient. So the older the patient is, the more likely she is to experience these side effects. In terms of the good side effects of tamoxifen, it is a partial agonist, so it does have some estrogenic properties. It does protect against bone mineral density loss, so it protects against osteopenia, osteoporosis. So there is an important side effect, important good side effect of tamoxifen. The side effect profile of the AIs differ from that of tamoxifen. In terms of the good things about AIs, it has less side effect profile on uterine cancer, in fact none. It has less toxicity in terms of hot flashes and vaginal dryness. The unique toxicity that some patients complain of with aromatase inhibitors is myalgia and arthralgia in about 10% of patients, and this can be quite severe and debilitating. Generally speaking, it appears to get better with time, and most patients do get by with simple analgesic medications like the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The bad toxicity associated with aromatase inhibitors is that it does not protect against osteoporosis. And in fact, over the first couple of years, while starting an aromatase inhibitor, there is actually a decrease in bone mineral density. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanisms of action inside the cell of various forms of hormonal therapy, tamoxifen, ovarian suppression and ablation, aromatase inhibitors, fulvestrin? What's the difference in terms of what's the mechanism? In terms of endocrine therapy, it has to be divided into premenopausal and postmenopausal women. In the premenopausal woman, the main source of estrogen is from the ovaries. So, in terms of endocrine therapy, ovarian suppression, suppressing the estrogen production from the ovaries, is a very important treatment with premenopausal women. However, in the adjuvant setting, ovarian suppression has not been demonstrated yet to be of benefit. This is being studied in three large multi-center studies and they're recruiting well to these studies. The question is, 
does ovarian suppression in the premenopausal woman add to conventional endocrine therapy? One such study is the SOFT study, where premenopausal women are randomized to tamoxifen, which is a standard of care, versus ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen, versus ovarian suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor. And in terms of understanding how these therapies work, you know, the ovarian suppression or removal, that seems pretty straightforward. You're taking away the estrogen that can stimulate the tumor cell. What about tamoxifen? How does that work? Tamoxifen is essentially a partial agonist. It basically would bind to the estrogen receptor and cause effects on the estrogen receptor together with what's called co-activators and co-repressors. And therefore, it does not degrade estrogen receptor, but it decreases the signal through the estrogen receptor signaling. And so therefore, it works both in pre- and postmenopausal women. In postmenopausal women, the main source of estrogen is from what is called the conversion of androgens into estrogens in the periphery, either muscle or fat. And this conversion from androgens to estrogens, you need an enzyme called aromatase. And so the aromatase inhibitors prevent the peripheral conversion of androgens to estrogens. And in fact, it is so effective that if you measure the serum estradiol level in patients who are undergoing aromatase inhibitor treatment, it is almost undetectable. In addition, the aromatase inhibitors may have an effect on what is called intratumoral estrogen production. There is a belief that in the breast, there is an estrogen production because of the aromatase enzyme. So the aromatase inhibitor can decrease the intratumoral estrogen production, and therefore you may not require a systemic estrogen reduction in the serum. You can have a local effect within the breast itself. What about fulvestrin? Fulvestrin, also known as Fasodex, is indicated in a metastatic setting. The current indication is for postmenopausal women. It works by degrading the estrogen receptor. So instead of preventing the binding to the estrogen receptor, it actually degrades the estrogen receptor. It is, in most metastatic studies, as effective as aromatase inhibitors in terms of its efficacy. In terms of its toxicity, it's extremely well tolerated. However, it is an intramuscular injection, which does cause a certain degree of discomfort to the patient. It is a viscous intramuscular injection. Now going back to adjuvant hormonal therapy, you mentioned the side effects and the potential benefits of therapy. I want to ask you a few sort of related questions. What about the duration of adjuvant hormonal therapy? What's the usual duration and what clinical research is going on in that area? It's a very big question. Let's start with tamoxifen. Tamoxifen has been around, as I've said, since the 1970s, so a lot is known about it. And the duration studies have been well worked out with adjuvant tamoxifen. Tamoxifen is prescribed for five years in the adjuvant setting, off the bat, if you're giving it as tamoxifen alone. More than five years of tamoxifen has shown to be of no benefit and may actually increase toxicity and actually be detrimental to the patient outcome. So for adjuvant tamoxifen, if given by itself, the duration is for five years. However, with the aromatase inhibitors, a lot less is known about it. So depending on whether we give the aromatase inhibitors up front, after two years, or even after five years, the duration of aromatase inhibitors is not known. In fact, there will be several studies that would even randomize patients 
when they have reached five-year mark to see whether or not continuation of an AI would be of benefit in that setting. There is no data available as to how long we should give an aromatase inhibitor for. Another thing that's come out with research on the aromatase inhibitor is the issue of delayed relapse, relapses between, for example, years 5 and 10. And one of the strategies that's been looked at is to use aromatase inhibitors in women who previously received tamoxifen. Can you talk about that research and how that gets translated into practice? So this study was done by the National Cancer Institute of Canada, and the lead investigator was Dr. Paul Goss. And basically, essentially, patients who received five years of tamoxifen were randomized to nothing or to an aromatase inhibitor. In this case, it was letrozole. And essentially, in this extended use of aromatase inhibitor, there was a significant benefit in decreasing the chance of relapse in patients. So that study has been published a year or two ago, and a lot of work is now continuing as to whether or not these patients should be continued for further in the adjuvant setting. What about the use of aromatase inhibitors in the prevention setting or DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ? What research is being done in that area? The current FDA-approved drug for prevention is still tamoxifen. The recent data from the large NACBP prevention study, the STAR study, showed that raloxifene, which is a cousin of tamoxifen, belongs to the same family of SERMs, selective estrogen receptor modulators, that it may be of a superior toxicity profile in terms of efficacy tamoxifen and raloxifene are more or less similar. The toxicity profile favors raloxifene. So that is the only indication at the moment that it's FDA approved. Obviously, in the case of the aromatase inhibitors, what was interesting in these adjuvant studies was it was noted that the decrease in contralateral breast cancer was greater with aromatase inhibitors than tamoxifen. And I guess tamoxifen already is a very effective 50% reduction to start with. And then the aromatase inhibitors added even another approximately 50% on top of that. So it is in terms of reducing contralateral breast cancer, aromatase inhibitors were more effective than tamoxifen. And that was the premise in which we started the prevention studies. The decrease in contralateral breast cancer was the primary premise that prevention studies were based on. So there's a lot of early evidence that the aromatase inhibitors in postmenopausal women may be more effective than tamoxifen in preventing breast cancer. However, that has to be weighed out against the long-term side effects, perhaps, in terms of bone health. In Europe, a study has started comparing a serum versus an AI, and there have been several smaller studies here between a serum versus an AI, I believe that the NACBP are contemplating the replacement study to include an aromatase inhibitor versus raloxifene. Now, tracking out more in terms of adjuvant therapy for the patient with an ER-positive tumor, let's focus on the woman who has a HER2-negative tumor, and particularly the very common situation of a patient who has a node-negative tumor. A lot of women like that are presenting because of mammography, And then the issue comes up, they're going to get hormonal therapy, but should chemotherapy be added in in addition? Can you talk about how you make that decision and what your thoughts are about the Oncotype DX assay and trying to assist with that decision? We are in a very unique situation in that, you know, we do detect cancers a lot earlier now with the advent of screening. And we do have a significant proportion of patients that are between one to two centimeters or even under one centimeter 
we, who are node negative, who have a good tumor marker profile. They're low grade, they're ER, strongly estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive. So this is a whole arena that we need to think about very carefully. I think in my very simplistic way, patients who are ER positive, node negative, I look at tumor size. If it's less than one centimeter, most oncologists would consider those patients likely cured with endocrine therapy alone. It is the borderline greater than one centimeter cancer and perhaps other features like grade. And they are a very difficult patient population to consider what best therapy is for them. Studies have been done that show that women are willing to undergo chemotherapy for one to two percent benefit in terms of cure rate. So in these patients should be offered chemotherapy. It would be great if we could actually have a better test to see whether or not how accurate her risk of distant relapse is. The Oncotype DX is an assay which is now FDA approved. It was based on 21 genes, of which 16 are cancer-related genes. These genes have been studied extensively over the past 20-30 years. They include genes in the estrogen receptor group, the progesterone receptor group, the HER2 group, proliferation, invasion, and they have put together this set of genes with a unique algorithm to calculate a woman's risk of distant relapse. And the woman's risk of distant relapse is broken into three very simple groups. Those at low risk of recurrence, intermediate risk of recurrence, and high risk of recurrence. And so there is a study in the adjuvant setting that will look at patients who are node negative, ER positive, dividing them into three groups. The low risk group will receive endocrine therapy alone. The high risk group will receive endocrine therapy plus chemotherapy. In the intermediate group, which is the group we struggle most with, the patients will be randomized to receive chemotherapy or not. And this will tell us whether or not we can use a test like this, the Oncotype DX, a form of genotyping, to better assess the individual risk of distant relapse. Are you yourself using the test in your clinical practice? I use it, I think, as we earlier alluded to, the biomarkers that we basically rely on very heavily, which is ER, PR, HER2, is notoriously discordant between centers. The Oncotype DX is a very good way of unifying these tests in a clear-approved lab that is you know, FDA-approved. So the quantitation of these assays for something that we use routinely is well done. So for that reason alone, I believe it has a role to play. I do send it off for patients that I'm struggling with as to whether or not they would benefit from chemotherapy. A typical example would be a woman who is maybe slightly older, 60, 65, who has maybe a 1.2 centimeter cancer, who is grade two, and an ER is positive, maybe a PGR is negative. And so there's a little bit of conflict within me whether or not she'll benefit from chemotherapy. So there definitely are instances which I've sent it off. And patients like it because you have apparently a very precise measurement of the chance of distant recurrence, and they like that. You know, it's interesting, too, the issue of whether or not ER-positive tumors are sensitive or as sensitive to chemotherapy as ER-negative tumors. And yet, in this situation, by using the Oncotype, you can identify a group of women with ER-positive tumors who have 75% reduction in relapse rate with chemotherapy. Yes. Is that your read on the data? All our molecular classification of breast cancer is going to change. So within the ER group, there are going to be different types of breast cancer. PGR is another rough indicator of a different type of steroid receptor hormone sensitive tumors and HER2 positive steroid receptor hormone positive cancers are again different. 
So I think that our understanding at the moment is quite limited, and we need to basically have a better understanding of the molecular subtypes of breast cancer and how they individually respond to the different therapies. So I agree with you. In the ER group, is the HER2 group the one that responds to chemotherapy? I don't think we know any of that. But the Oncotype DX is a nice essay because it puts all of them together in an easily understandable manner. Let's talk a little bit about the patient with a HER2-positive tumor in the adjuvant setting. How do you go about deciding whether or not to include trastuzumab in the adjuvant regimen? The data that's come up from the adjuvant trastuzumab is extremely exciting. It improves on the best conventional therapy. The hazard ratio is 0.5, so it reduces the chance of recurrence by 50%, so doubles the best conventional therapy that we have at the moment. So in terms of the value of adding trastuzumab to our conventional therapies, I think it's well proven. The toxicity profile is favorable in terms of its benefit. So in terms of any patient who is node positive or has node negative but high-risk disease, I think the answer is clear that trastuzumab has a role to play. Where trastuzumab is a little controversial is in the patient who has low risk of distant relapse, a patient under one centimeter or 1.2 centimeters, node negative with HER2 positive breast cancer. That is slightly more controversial. And I think it has to be based on individual risk. Interestingly, the data that came from Finland, the FinHER study that was published in the New England Journal, may give us a little bit of insight as to what we should do in the future. In the FinHER study, Patients only receive trastuzumab for a total of nine weeks, as opposed to the adjuvant trials that were done in the U.S., which gave adjuvant trastuzumab for one year. In the FinHER study, the hazard ratio was similar to that in the U.S. studies. The hazard ratio was 0.5, and yet trastuzumab was only given for nine weeks. As opposed to one year in the other studies. Correct. So is there some indication that perhaps for lower-risk patients that we could get away with a shorter duration of trastuzumab therapy? And that's something I believe should be studied in multi-center studies. Now, one of the issues that's come out relating to what you just said is, is there a synergy between the trastuzumab effect and the effect of chemotherapy? How is trastuzumab integrated into the chemotherapy regimen, and do you think there is some kind of synergy? In in vitro cell line data, trastuzumab showed synergy with a variety of chemotherapy agents, the ones that we use commonly, for example, the texanes, navobene, gemcitabine. So in cell line data, it is clear that trastuzumab is synergistic with chemotherapy. In terms of in patients, is there synergy between trastuzumab and chemotherapy? The jury is still out. In the U.S., the study that was presented and published was with concomitant use of trastuzumab and a taxane. However, part of the study, which has not reached maturity, some of the patients were randomized to sequential trastuzumab, and the results of that is not yet available and may not be large enough to give us a definitive answer. In Europe, this trastuzumab, which showed a 50% reduction too, was given after chemotherapy, and yet the hazard ratio was similar. So the jury is very much out as to whether or not trastuzumab should be given concomitantly or sequentially. The in vitro data supports synergism, but we have to wait for results in the clinical trials. 
You mentioned that in general, when it has been given with chemotherapy, it's been given during, quote, a taxane, and it's been done both with paclitaxel and docetaxel. What do we know about the practical aspects of utilizing those two taxanes, as well as nab paclitaxel and abraxane with trastuzumab? They're very well tolerated. I think that it doesn't add very much more toxicities. And in terms of abraxane or nab paclitaxel, again, the nice benefit of that drug is toxicity profile. The sensory neuropathy is quickly reversed on stopping the taxane. So it is a nice drug to give in that respect. It may be slightly more efficacious than taxol, but in terms of toxicity profile, it is a very, it is basically taxol with a nicer toxicity profile. Have you used that drug yourself? Yes. How do you find it clinically compared to paclitaxel or docetaxel? It is very well tolerated, and it is as efficacious as any of the other taxanes. I guess one of the obvious advantages is that you don't need pre-medications. Right, and it's quick. The infusion time, I believe, is like 15 minutes as opposed to the other taxanes, which are much longer than that. And there's no pre-med, there's no toxicity, there's no sensory neuropathy or very quickly reversible at any rate and no pre-meds. Again, sort of from a nursing perspective, what do you see as the advantages of being able to avoid the pre-medication? What are the kinds of patients who have problems with pre-medication and the advantages of the infusion time? I think most of my oncology nurses like the naptaxel, the abraxing, because of the lack of toxicity and the chair time is 15 minutes. So those are the two major advantages for them. You do not have to put up all the infusion, the decadron, the benadryl, and all that is actually, you do not need any of that. And again, basically the patient is in and out of your chair within half an hour at most. So that again is very much preferred by the oncology nursing community. You mentioned that the clinical trial suggested that when you get a neuropathy with NAB, that maybe it goes away quicker. Have you observed that yourself in your practice? I haven't observed very many people with peripheral neuropathy or sensory neuropathy with abraxine. Hmm. The last thing I want to ask you about is bevacizumab and the data that have come out now over the past year on that drug and how you see that now affecting clinical practice in the metastatic setting. Can you kind of review that story? There have been generally two large studies with bevacizumab, or also known as Avastin. The first study was done in heavily pretreated patients, where patients received Zoloda, or capecitabine, plus or minus bevacizumab. That study did not show a benefit of the addition of bevacizumab. In a more recent study, in patients in first-line metastatic setting, were randomized to receive Taxol, or paclitaxel, plus or minus bevacizumab. In that setting, bevacizumab significantly improved the time-to-treatment progression. It doubled the time-to-treatment progression at a statistically significant p-value. To date, as I understand, there is no impact on overall survival. It's equivalent in both groups. So in my selection of patients that may benefit from bevacizumab, I basically follow the guidelines of that study. So patients in first-line setting will receive bevacizumab and Taxol as per the study that Kathy Miller presented in San Antonio and in ASCO last year. Are there any situations where you would use bevacizumab with some other form of chemotherapy? I think that because of the negative study in heavily pretreated patients, I do not believe that we have any data in that setting in patients more than perhaps one to two lines metastatic treatment. 
would we use bevacizumab in combination with some other chemotherapy, there is no reason to suppose that it will only work in combination with Taxol if it's an anti-angiogenesis agent. Having said that, I try to limit my use as much as the eligibility criteria for Kathy Miller's study. Can you talk about some of the side effects and toxicity issues with Avastin? Avastin is given every two weeks by intravenous infusion. The main two toxicities are it can cause an increase in blood pressure, and the other thing is it may cause proteinuria. Both of these side effects can be a little worrisome, but can be well-controlled. So urine dipsticks for protein secretion is indicated in patients who are undergoing bevacizumab therapy. And if it is of significant proteinuria, then a 24-hour urine collection is indicated. In the study, after the protein excretion has exceeded a certain amount, the bevacizumab is withheld. So those are the main toxicities with Avastin or bevacizumab. In terms of tolerability with the patient, it is well tolerated. There are very few side effects, again, apart from the two that I've mentioned, that the oncologists and the nursing community need to be aware of. Now, in colon cancer, we've seen bowel perforation with bevacizumab, and lung cancer, we've seen thoracic hemorrhage with bevacizumab. Have we seen those two problems with bevacizumab and breast cancer? So bevacizumab is supposed to decrease wound healing and may cause hemorrhage. It is less in breast because it's not been given less in a neoadjuvant setting where you then proceed to surgery. But that same is not so for colorectal cancer. Other complication, and we do not know whether this will be a major concern, is in patients with cerebral metastases, will there be cerebral hemorrhage with the use of Avastin? And that we do not know. In terms of use of hormonal therapy in metastatic disease, can you talk a little bit about how you approach the selection of hormonal therapy, whether it's a premenopausal or postmenopausal patient, and then how you factor in whether they've received prior hormonal therapy? So, in a metastatic patient, again, of critical importance is whether she's pre- or postmenopausal. In a premenopausal woman, generally speaking, either in the adjuvant or in the first-time metastatic setting, tamoxifen, followed by tamoxifen and LHRH agonist, and then you will go through all the other therapies with that. In a postmenopausal woman, generally speaking, one would start tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors, forvestrin are all within the same ballpark, and which you use first is actually very much dependent on the adjuvant therapies that the patient has been on. There is data in the metastatic setting that combinational therapies may be superior. For example, there was a meta-analysis that showed superior outcome efficacy in patients who receive LH agonists plus tamoxifen versus tamoxifen alone. What about, let's say, a postmenopausal patient who's been on an aromatase inhibitor for three or four years? What would your next hormonal therapy likely be if she had metastasis? That's interesting. So probably in that setting, I assume that she's seen adjuvant tamoxifen. I would probably switch to Fesladex. There are animal model studies done by Dr. Angela Brody that actually show that perhaps adding Fesladex to Aromadex may be better. So those studies are being done. And I believe there will also be an adjuvant study comparing an AI versus AI plus Fesladex. So does Fesladex work well alone, or does it work better in combination with an aromatase inhibitor is the subject of research. How do you find patients with metastatic disease tolerating fulvestrin? It's tolerated very well. The main problem is the intramuscular injection, 
which is again a viscous fluid that's given and it is painful. It's mildly painful. What about side effects in terms of vasomotor symptoms with fulvestrin compared to say tamoxifen or AIs? I think it compares very favorably. One of the things that have been kind of controversial about fulvestrin is the dose of it. And a lot of people use sort of a loading dose to kind of get patients started. Do you do that? And what are your thoughts about that strategy? I do use a loading dose. I believe that in the adjuvant study that was being planned, it is at a higher dose of a loading dose. So that is something which I think in Dr. Osborne's mouse models and in these earlier studies, I think the loading dose may be superior. What kind of loading schedule do you use? I use 500 milligrams IM first for two weeks and then four weeks and then monthly thereafter.